It's February 26th, 2021. This is the Room Now Podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cushwood, RoomNow.com. Today, the title of this program was going to be OA Without a Paddle, but instead, I'm calling it Sweet Lies and Hard Truths. It's either relationship advice, career advice, or disease management advice. Listen on. So, our first report is about something I really am interested in, and that's CNS lupus. You know, CNS lupus actually occurs in up to 50% of patients when you consider all the many varieties in which CNS lupus might, in fact, occur, seizures and psychosis being minority occurrences in patients with neuropsychiatric lupus. But this report is a single-center, 40-year experience where they followed 709 lupus patients and over a 40-year period and a mean of 17 years of follow-up per patient, they found the risk of psychosis due to lupus to be just 2.5%. That's a total of a whopping 18 patients with lupus psychosis. And, you know, that seems about right. I don't think I've managed 709 patients with lupus, but 2.5% seems about right for the many hundreds I have. Um, They said that the good news was that two-thirds of these patients were successfully managed with either antipsychotics or a variety of immunosuppressives, and they really didn't give you any insight as to what really worked here, but I think they underscore the rarity of this condition. They also mentioned that psychosis seemed to have been associated with anti-RNP antibodies and negatively associated with anti-cardiolipin antibodies. Antineuronal antibodies and other things didn't seem to pan out all that well, but I can't say they've been comprehensive in their assessments. Interesting tidbit. A major tidbit would be a methotrexate and the risk of liver disease. A Danish population study looking at thousands of patients with psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and rheumatoid arthritis, I think like five, 6,000 each with psoriatic disease, and over 20,000 with RA, showed that the risk of liver disease in its many forms, mild, moderate, severe, and cirrhosis, was greatest in, yes, you guessed it, patients with psoriasis. Psoriasis more so than psoriatic arthritis, all being better than rheumatoid arthritis. In fact, the risk compared to RA patients of a psoriatic getting any of the forms of liver disease from methotrexate was about a 1.6 to 3.4 fold higher risk. It was a little bit less when you looked at PSA compared to RA was basically 1.3 to 1.6 or a 30 to 60% increase. Basically underscoring the fact that psoriatics more so than rheumatoids, probably need conservative um, liver function monitoring. And maybe those old guidelines make more sense in those psoriatic patients. There's a sub-analysis in arthritis and rheumatology about the, um, uh, the tocilizumab study in early systemic sclerosis patients looking at lung function specifically. As we know, The primary endpoint in that study, 210 patients, relatively early disease, showed it didn't really have much of an effect on the rotten skin score, meaning scleroderma didn't change very much with IL-6 inhibition, but it looked like that lung function was preserved, and that's what this analysis was. And I think I put it up there because I think it's important. You know, this drug was being developed, tocilizumab was being developed for Scleroderma, they had the fascinated, Fascinate study uh, in addition to this one that showed similar results 
but again, not hitting the primary endpoint in those studies led to their being sort of taken out of consideration for FDA approval, I think mainly by the company. And now I think that they're reconsidering this, and I think that they should. It's not their fault they chose the wrong, the wrong endpoint. No one actually wins with a scleroderma or tight skin going to smooth skin outcome in scleroderma, especially in the time frame that you can run a clinical trial these days, meaning you know clinical trials are long if they're 6 to 12 months. It may take much longer than that to actually have a significant outcome with regard to skin. But maybe they should do what's happened in lupus, where it's also been really, really hard to show significant improvement using global lupus measures, but less hard and maybe more commonsensical if you actually go after organ-specific outcomes. I think that this outcome, showing that there was no progression in patients who are taking the IL-6 inhibitor compared to those who are taking who are on placebo, makes a whole lot of sense and should be grounds, in fact, for a new drug that could be FDA approved for scleroderma. By the way, scleroderma, lung disease. That should be the indication. We'll see where this goes. It'll go slowly, just like the changes in skin. Speaking of dermatomyositis, well, we jump from scleroderma right into dermatomyositis. Uh, a Brazilian study looked at the relevance of anti-GO antibodies in 118 DM patients. About 8.5% of patients were, were GO1 positive. As you know, GO1 is one of the anti-synthetase autoantibody targets. Uh, and patients with GO1 had the anti-synthetase features of lung disease and mechanics hands. But maybe more importantly, and maybe the take-home message that you should have in your head is that these people are also difficult to treat. They are less likely or not likely to achieve remission, uh, and they require more steroids and more immunosuppressives to maintain the disease. Dermatomyositis is difficult to treat, maybe more difficult if they're in fact JO1 or antisynthetase antibody positive. Um, I don't do those tests, by the way. I don't do myositis specific, myositis specific antibody testing in my patients. Um, I don't know the changes in my therapy. Uh, now, if you're a myositis maven and you're jumping up and down and about to drive off the side of the road because you want to sh strangle Kush, um, write me a letter. Don't come to Dallas where you might hurt me. But again, I don't find them useful. I do find uh, some utility in some of the newer ones, MDA5, TIF1, Gamma, um, and uh, NXP2 because they're new and I want to learn more about them. You know, MDA5, clinically, clinically amyopathic dermatomyositis, TIF1 gamma association with cancer, NXP2 with cancer and maybe with calcinosis. I find those interesting. I'm less interested in PL12 and PL7 and EJ and sorry, just don't float my boat. Um, write a letter. Don't come to Dallas. An interesting study from the Danish birth register uh, looks at pregnant women and spondyloarthritis showing that spa patients have more adverse pregnancy outcomes, including more preterm births, more C-sections, more epidurals, um, but they were not increased as far as uh, preeclampsia and small birth weight. This is kind of what we see in other inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. Maybe I think the most controversial thing I published this week was the Medscape report called the 2021 Rheumatologist Lifestyle Happiness and Burnout Report. Until they got to the word burnout, it sounded like a nice episode of Fantasy Island. So 
they went on to show you that happiness levels amongst rheumatologists, not so good. Prior to the pandemic, in a list of 29 specialties, we were seventh from the bottom. Endocrine tops at the list at 89% happy. Rheumatologists only 79% happy. Weren't we supposed to be the happiest of all the subspecialties? What happened? Where did we fall from happiness? Was it prior authorizations? Was it, you know, too many drugs approved for psoriatic arthritis? Was it, I don't know, the run on hydroxychloroquine caused by the ex-president? God knows. But we fell off the list. Wait, it gets worse. After the pandemic, we we dropped from 79% happy to 49% happy, being third from the bottom on the list. This is not a happy report. In this report, they tell you that you have a 32% burnout rate. 11% of you are depressed. 51% have workplace issues. 100% have podcast issues with Kush. Half take three to four weeks of vacation. Oh, my my computer just went out. Oh, there it is. Half take three to four weeks of vacation. Uh, I think I need more than that. Um, again, the sample was only 1%, included 1% uh, rheumatologist, but then again... It was 1% for endocrinologists, and they're number one on the list. Um, I don't know what to make of this. This is a little bit surprising. I think rheumatologists are happy. I think medicine has gotten harder. It's gotten even harder during the pandemic. Um, I hope this trend doesn't keep up. An analysis, again, of um, uh, an important issue, hypertension in RA, a major comorbidity a major contributor of prednisone doses. So this is from a UK clinical practice registry um, looking at large numbers, 17,000 RA patients, 42% of whom were on steroids. They showed that recent glucocorticoid use with doses greater than 7.5 milligrams of prednisone a day or higher was associated with a 17% increased risk of hypertension. Doesn't sound like much, you say? Well, you know, extrapolate that to a few million people with RA, that hypertension can have really disastrous consequences. It can worsen cardiovascular disease. It can lead to premature death. Um, It is a serious uh, statistic that we should pay attention to. So what else do we pay attention to these days other than measuring? And what about treat to target? Desai and and Solomon and colleagues published the results of their Um, academic center's efforts to look at how treat the target works in practice. And what they did was they took 22 22 of their rheumatologists in their academic center, 13 of whom practiced usual medicine, usual care, and nine uh, of those rheumatologists underwent an intervention, training on treat the target and how it should go. They Everybody was provided with rapid three scores done weekly. Uh, there was electronic reminders and whatnot. And then after a period of time, they looked at the outcome. The outcome was measured as an implementation score for treat the target, TTT. And they looked at four parameters, including things like did you measure the DAS? Did you use the DAS in, in decision-making? Uh, was there shared decision-making, et cetera? Well, implementation scores were higher in the treat-to-target group, 44%, 45% versus 32%, and that was highly significant. Is that really highly significant? I mean, those not measuring and being reminded to implement a score still achieved the implementation scores 32% of the time, and those that did measure outbested them by about, what, another 
13%. Not like a major win here. So they call these modest improvements. Uh, again, the treat to target group was more likely to have a DAS recorded uh, disease activity measure, 77 versus 68%. Use the DAS in medication change, 45 versus 30%. More likely to do shared decision-making, 47 versus 30 Again, this is a win, but is it really a win? Here's the shocking part. When they looked at patients who had, and overall, again, 22 doctors, 500-something patients, 700-something visits. When they looked overall at the patients who had high disease activity, in fact, the intervention group in the face of high disease activity had lower drug changes, lower DMARD changes. What? What is that all about? Well, they said it was because the doctors in the intervention group felt that in spite of the numbers, disease control was achieved. They were satisfied with the disease control, even though they had, wait, high disease activity. Moreover, another major reason uh, was the presence of comorbidities. Are doctors looking for excuses not to change? You know, the data on changing in DMARDs is really quite bad for most rheumatologists. You all are very good at managing RA. I mean, it's, it's amazing what rheumatologists do, especially since not all of you, in fact, do a 28 joint count or a 68 joint count at every visit on every patient, um, that most of you don't do a disease activity measure, and all of you do not, in fact, practice treat to target. Being a good rheumatologist sounds like you practice treat to target, but you don't. And some of you do, and you know, you can tell me who you are and others, you know, can argue about who you are. But the data is the data. You know, RA management would probably go better if it was a, a truly a treat-to-target scheme run by nurses with a protocol. We need you, the rheumatologist, to do what? Make a good diagnosis, assess risk, um, and then score the patient's activity as being either great, good, good enough, or horrible. That's kind of the scale we use. And we only use horrible as the reason to treat differently. I did a whole series called The War on RA with my disappointments in RA management care and research. I think this whole treat the target thing that I really do believe in has been a crash and burn exercise. An S show, if you know what I mean. So how can this be made better? Maybe we should let patients make the treatment changes. Give them the rules. Maybe we should have, get, bring back the gold clinic run by the nurse, except we're going to call this the treat the target clinic. We could do the same for gout. And again, there's a lot of research that shows they do way better with a protocol than you do with your estimations, guesstimations, and excellence in care. This is really disappointing. And I, I'm sure that this is not a happy message for a lot of people. But I think it's the truth. And the truth is, again, hard to take. But the truth will set you free. The truth will get you the greatest good and advances. You know, believing the same old, same old is not going to get you anywhere new. So I'm sorry for the bad news in RA. Wait, there's bad news in OA too. A nice review in JAMA from Katz, Arant, and Lozer. It's a free open read. You should look at it. Some great information. It's called The Diagnosis and Treatment of Osteoarthritis of the Hip and Knee. Um, a lot of important points. 
240 million people worldwide with osteoarthritis, 32 million in the United States, a major cause of pain and disability, and drug therapy. You know, we talk a lot about the major advances in drug therapy and rheumatoid arthritis in diseases that affect somewhere between a half a million and maybe one or two million people. We're doing nothing for the 32 to 60 million who've got osteoarthritis because they're being gigantically undertreated. If you look at the guidelines that are covered in here, what works? Intraarticular steroids, that's a pipe dream. Short-term benefit, long-term hazards. Non-steroidals, one paragraph on their efficacy, two gigantic paragraphs on their toxicity. Limited efficacy for drugs that we commonly use, acetaminophen and duloxetine. Really negative skull and crossbones warnings for opioids, glucosamine, chondroitin sulfate, hyaluronic acid injections, growth factor, platelet-rich plasma. Forget about regenerative medicine and the fiasco that is. So where's all the great benefits and research you know, we need more research, we need better drugs, and there are things in clinical trials, but they're going to have a hard time getting approved. Uh, as one who's had osteoarthritis and has had bilateral knee replacements, I can tell you, drugs were good. I needed them for 25 years to get around, to, or maybe I should say to limp around, but believe me, they have no comparison to the benefits of knee replacement surgery or hip replacement surgery. The numbers are staggering. 700,000 knee replacement surgeries in the United States every year, 330,000 hip replacements, uh, and 90% of these are for osteoarthritis. The 90-day mortality for these joint replacement procedures is less than 1%. The serious infection rates at 90 days is less than 5%. Revisions, I know the orthopedists since I did my fellowship were saying these, these new fake joints, prosthetic joints will only last 10 years. The new ones are built to last over 30 years. The revision rates, current day, which means that they're, the data is 10, 20 years old, the revision rates after 20 years is 10% for uh, knees and 20% for hips. It's going to get better with a new generation that's being implanted now. Maybe the more worrisome factor is that not everybody receives uh, hips and knee replacements equally. Um, different racial groups and ethnic groups are not as likely as white people like myself to get such surgery and benefit from such surgery. This is a major, major medical need. Orthopedists are treating osteoarthritis, not you, the rheumatologist. And most fellows and young doctors are afraid to use non-steroidals, don't use much in the way any pain medicines, don't really have a plan other than rub some Voltaren gel on it and send them to the physical therapy. If that's the best we can do, I guess we probably should send them to the orthopedist. On that happy note, hope you'll be at Room Now Live. It's coming up in a few weeks. Tune in next week.